According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're here for the purpose of growth. My notes are on the way. Did the right paper come out? Oh, okay. No. Oh, that's not it. All right, we'll try it again. Oh, I'll just teach without notes. <laughs> there you go. Join me, if you would, in uh, Mark chapter 10. We'll try this again. We'll see if it's going to print the right uh, page this time. All right. The rich young ruler. Story that comes out of Matthew chapter 19. It also comes out of Mark 10 and Luke 18. I think we've been mainly in Mark for the bulk of our study and then uh, brought in the other gospel records uh, as uh, needed for the detail that's found in some of these other accounts. Is that the rich young ruler this time? All right. You never know what's going to get printed and what you end up teaching, you know. All right. All right. I got the right notes. We'll teach the right class. How about that? Let's take a moment for silent prayer so that each believer priest has the opportunity to humble yourself under the authority of doctrine. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we acknowledge your glory today and thank you for your faithfulness. Father, this is a privilege and a blessing that we have to assemble together and we, we commit to you our time. Father, asking that you would set aside distraction. Don't let us daydream or, or waste uh, our time or defile your courts. Father, we want to be here for instruction. So bless us through your word today. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. The context for this comes right on the heels of the Lord's message regarding childlike faith. And uh, we dealt with that in the previous episode titled uh, Jesus Blesses Children. And um, we notice it here in Mark 10 that uh, in the previous episode where uh, he said it's necessary, it's required. Uh, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So unless you are humble, and the key, the character trait being portrayed here is the one of humility, unless you are humble to accept the grace offer on a, on a faith basis, then you're not saved. That's just the, the plain reality of it. And uh, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way to enter into glory. And so then he takes the children in his arms and begins blessing them. Now, it's in that context then, as he's getting ready to depart, setting out on a journey that a man runs up to him, kneels before him and asks him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is a lot more gracious and patient than I am because, uh, you know, I would want to slap the guy and say, what did I just tell you? (laughs) Humble yourself, become like a child. But it's interesting, he He deals with this man where he is. And that's what we're learning here last week and again this week. Uh, Dealing with people where they're coming from. Know who it is and where they're coming from. If someone's coming to you and you know that all their life they've been saturated with Roman Catholicism, you've got to know that. You've got to understand that. You've got to be able to deal with them from where they're coming from. Or, you know, any background, whatever it may be. All right, so anyway, this is the context. And so the perfect illustration for the opposite, the opposite of childlike faith, the opposite of humility, is Pharisaic pride. This man that's full of himself because he's kept the law and he thinks he's perfect. And uh, Christ is going to spotlight one thing that disproves his perfection. All three Gospels call him rich. Matthew calls him a young man. Luke calls him a ruler. And so we combine all three gospel records to call him the rich, young ruler. All right. If all we had was the gospel of Matthew, then we would just have to call him the, uh, the rich, young man. And if all we had was Luke, we would call him the rich ruler. Um, and if all we had was Mark, we'd just call him the rich guy. 
<laughs> All right. But we got Matthew, we got Mark, we got Luke, we combine them together, and this is the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, under point three, the impact was on the term agathos of goodness. Many friends and enemies referred to Jesus as teacher or rabbi. Many of his friends called him rabbi or called him teacher. Many of his enemies called him rabbi or called him teacher. This man is unique in calling him good. He says, good teacher. What good thing must I do? And he's focused on the realm of goodness. And Jesus has to um, put a perspective on that. He says, there's only one who is good. Why are you wrapped up in goodness? This man was not only convinced of his own righteousness, but also because of that, his own goodness. And that's a huge problem. All right. We have God's righteousness imputed to our account. Do we have God's goodness imputed to our account? How is it that we can lay claim to goodness in our own Christian walk, in our own salvation status, you understand? This is part of the outworking of our salvation, where by which we bear the fruit of the Spirit, right? Which includes gentleness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control, and all of this. Anyway, he approaches it on the basis of goodness. This has to be a part of our focus as well. If you encounter someone that uh, is wrapped up in their own goodness. See, I'm, I remember a flight from San Antonio, no, uh, St. Louis to Austin, sitting next to a lady who told me she wasn't a sinner. And I was shocked. You know, I tried to be a little diplomatic with her, because, but I was kind of shocked, you know, and someone telling me that they're not a sinner. And I wanted to, you know, later on, you think about the things you should have said. You know, <laughs> I wanted to say, well, you just told me a lie. So there's a sin right there, you know. But I was, I was just so stunned that she said she wasn't a sinner. And I, I said, well, Ever? Not ever? You know, and, and then she finally conceded, well, you know, every once in a while, not, not that often, though, by and large, more often than not, I'm, I'm a good person. And see, and that's the, that's the worldly definition. As long as you're, you don't sin as often as you do good things, then you can say, I'm not a sinner, I'm a, I'm a good person. As long as the scale tips the right direction. See, by and large, she doesn't sin that often, you know, very rarely. You know, and so since it is rather infrequent, then she was pretty confident that she's a good person. And uh, on that basis of her confidence, she feels that she is going to make it to heaven. Say, well, needless to say, uh, I tried to take the conversation more into a grace gospel approach <laughs> to show that, you know, the confidence you have that you're basically a good person is going to basically put you in hell. So let's uh, let's talk about the real gospel as uh far as that goes. Well, goodness. Goodness, goodness. All right. We had some other things there. Point four. I'm going to skip through this. Point five. Um, here's what makes it so extraordinary. Because his ministry in this episode, Jesus' ministry in this episode is extraordinary for its non-evangelistic communication. Christ does not give him the gospel in this passage. Jesus Christ tells him, to go keep the law. And at first glance, or maybe second glance, maybe third glance, you and I look at that and say, ooh, wait a minute. Why is he not doing that? Why is he not giving the gospel? Why is he telling this guy to go keep the law? All right? And so we want to spend our time on this. He says, what good thing must I do? Or good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. This is Mark 10:17. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Uh, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. That, that, uh, that's unique to Mark, by the way. That clause is not in Matthew or Luke. Um, honor your father and mother. So he basically gives him a sample of the Ten Commandments, really the second half of the Ten Commandments, right? The, the last five commandments. And uh, said, keep all those and you got it made. You will live. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. See, he knows something's missing. He knows it's not all good. What else am I lacking? What else is there? You know, can I just bank on the fact that I've earned it and relax now for the rest of my life? Okay. And this, uh, there's so many things we could draw out of this and so many illustrations. And if you've ever been a part of a legalistic ministry, you know what this is like. Or if you've ever had a legalistic background, you understand what this is like. Uh, you can never rest. You can never relax. 
You can never bank on uh, if, if legalism is what's going to get you there, then uh, you have a hard time stopping that and resting and relaxing and saying, well, okay, I've done my time. I've earned it. I've arrived. The problem is, is that slacker attitude will invariably leave you wondering, hmm, maybe I've now lost what I earned. (laughs) And it's hopeless. You can never feel like you've reached enough. And so he says, one thing are you lacking? And um, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. That also is unique to Mark. uh, The love is not communicated in Matthew or Luke, but Mark spotlights it. Jesus felt a love for him. Do you and I have share that same love? You know, do we see this lost and dying world that's trying to earn or deserve something through human effort, trying to measure up? And do we have a, a real love that reaches out and says, you know, you're beating your head against a wall and it's not going to take you anywhere but the lake of fire. We need to develop that. One thing you lack. One thing. Now, do you, is, that a, is that a true statement? I think it's a lie, you know, not a carnal lie, but it is, he's using it to illustrate one thing that you have left. Now, I believe there must have been a hundred, a thousand, you know, no shortage of things that were still lacking. But he highlights one because this one is going to be so glaring that the minute he, he lays it out there, the money thing, the minute he lays that money thing out there, this guy is just going to be devastated. He knows that. And so he acts like, Oh, you've only got one thing left. You're just one step away. That's not true. Not in a strict, technical, absolute basis. And keeping these points of the law isn't going to save the guy. That's not true either. Okay? But Jesus is using this communication that for the sake of argument, assuming that it could be true, understand? Assuming that you can earn your way to salvation, then just keep these commandments and you're fine. The whole point being is that at some point, the futility of the law comes crashing down. And people realize, wait a minute, I can't get saved this way. And that's why law is given. Law is given as a tutor to lead us to grace, to lead us to Christ, to show that none of us measures up. We're all condemned. All right. One thing you're lacking. Go and sell all your possess and and, uh, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now, is that one of the Ten Commandments? Is there a law somewhere in the Mosaic Law that says give away all your stuff? No, there really isn't. You know, this is a, uh, you know, is Jesus just kind of winging it here, making up a a commandment to give him, you know, hey, do this and and you'll have eternal life? Well, if you're going to make up your own way to heaven anyway, why not? (laughs) Which is what this man's doing. Yeah, all right. Now, there's a lot to be said here. And uh, clearly, Jesus is not trying to lead this man to Christ. Jesus is not giving him a gospel. Jesus isn't saying, quit trying to earn it, believe in the promises, believe in God. Okay? He's not giving him a gospel message. This is non-evangelistic communication. And there's lessons here for us to learn because we will have our own occasions to speak evangelistically and to speak non-evangelistically. And we have to understand uh, when each of those realms is appropriate. Now, there's a similar question that's asked in uh, Philippi. Paul and Silas responded to the Philippian jailer evangelistically, but Jesus responded to the rich young ruler legalistically. Understand the difference. The questions are almost identical. The Philippian jailer says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, you and your household. <laughs> you know, we like that passage, okay? Because we, uh, we're evangelical, we're Protestant, we're, we're Christian. We, we want to see people saved, and this is, that's, that's our language, right? Paul and Silas, they're, they're speaking our language. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Jesus says, We'll keep the law. He says, give away all your possessions. You'll have treasure in heaven. And we are starting to get a little uncomfortable with that. Saying, Jesus, what are you doing? So don't be uncomfortable with that. Our Lord is brilliant in this respect. And we want to understand this. All right. Paul and Silas are responding evangelistically. Jesus is responding legalistically. And what did we learn in our First Timothy series regarding the use of the law? First Timothy one eight. 
Law is good if one uses it lawfully or legalistically. Law is terrible if you're trying to use it in grace or graciously. You can't. You can't try to create a hybrid of law and grace or try to inject legalism into Christianity into a grace approach. You can't do it. Law is not designed for that. Law is designed for an immoral man and a fornicator and a perjurer and a liar and a murderer and all of that. But law is good if you use it lawfully. See, that's what Jesus is doing here. This man is approaching him legalistically, so Jesus replies to him legalistically. He uses the law. And at some point, this rich young ruler is going to get it. It's going to sink in that there's just no hope. Law does not provide a hope. And we even see it here in the immediate reaction. Look at this, Mark 10. And, um, you know, here's Jesus saying, well, all you got to do is just give away everything and you got it. And uh, at these words, verse 22, at these words, he was sad. And then he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. You know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. We'll see that here shortly. Um, so there's two different responses and because of two different approaches. And that's what we're taking the time to, to break down. So Paul and Silas responded to the Philippian jailer evangelistically, but Jesus responded to the rich young ruler legalistically. Secondly, now, the jailer responded with faith. Hallelujah. Right? He believed. He and his household, they got baptized that very night. Acts 16.34. But the rich young ruler responded with sorrow. The rich young ruler responded with sorrow. And that's a good thing. Sorrow can be a blessing. As we're looking at in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there's a sorrow that leads to repentance. All right? Sorrow can be a good thing, particularly with Pharisaic legalism. <laughs> I hope they get miserable. Or believers that are out there in reversionism and carnality. Man, I don't want them to be happy. You kidding me? Make them miserable. They, they are miserable. They think they're not, but they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. See? Sorrow can be a blessing. And the rich young ruler responded with sorrow. The, uh, the, the message they were given were different. The responses they were given were, uh, were, uh, that they came back with were different. And that's because the approach was different. How was it that the jailer approached? He approached with wonder. He approached with wonder at men that were preserved by divine power. He figured they escaped in the earthquake. And he was going to fall on his sword so that he wasn't executed by his centurion for being a... Uh, for being a, uh, you know, that's a rough job description. You know, anyone escapes and, and, and you're executed. And don't think you can simply blame an earthquake. That's no excuse. You are on duty. You let those men escape. And yet, they didn't escape. They remained there. And he approached with wonder, we're told there in Acts 16, 26-29. But the rich young ruler, what was he approaching with? He was approaching with the confidence of a man preserved by human effort. And we see that in all three records. Matthew 19.20, Mark 10.20, Luke 18.21. In all three of the Synoptic Gospel accounts, this man is absolutely confident he has been keeping this law perfectly since his youth. In other words, since that point of bar mitzvah where he's accountable for the law. All right? But understand, such confidence is always shaky. The most self-confident people you'll ever meet, if they think they're earning their way to heaven... Somewhere in the darkness of the, of the midnight, you know, in the middle of the night, in the back of their mind, at some point, a part of their conscience has to wonder, is this enough? Is this enough? And we had this already, uh, Luke 18, or you can even back up to Luke 16, but um, what do we have right in front of our current study? Of course, we got Luke 18:21 for this episode with the rich young ruler. All these things I've kept from my youth, you know. Well, then, what are you, what are you wasting your time talking to Jesus for? You're, you're there. Now he knows he's not there, and that's why he keeps asking. But even back up to the uh, previous paragraph there, verse nine, verse fourteen. Here's, he told this parable <laughs> to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And of course, this is the Pharisee and the tax collector. And this Pharisee is so awesome. 
At least he thinks so. And his, his prayers are full of how great he is. And uh, he says, I thank you, God, not for what you've done, but I thank you that I'm so wonderful. And I, I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. I, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You know, and he's notifying God of how awesome he is, just in case maybe God hadn't quite noticed a couple of, you know, make sure all the rewards are credited properly. I tell you, look at verse 14. I tell you, this man, the sinner, the, the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. That self-righteous man was unrighteous. He was not justified. The tax collector wouldn't even lift up his eyes, kept beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That man was justified. That man was saved because he knew he didn't earn it, didn't deserve it. By grace through faith, he received eternal life. <clears throat> so this uh, self-righteous guy, self-confidence is always, always shaky. Back to chapter 16. Different story, but uh, he was just telling the Pharisees, giving them the whatnot. Pharisees were lovers of money, were listening to all these things. They were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Highly esteemed and detestable. Oh, there's a ton of doctrine in that. That goes back to our light things and heavy things, the, the weighty things and the negligible things. Everything the, Bible, the Old Testament talks about and things that are glorious and things that are detestable. Self-confidence, such confidence is always, always shaky. So, understand the um, the approach was different. This man was approaching in pride. Philippian jailer approached in, in humility and wonder. The responses were different. Paul and Silas responded evangelistically. Jesus responded legalistically. And then the outcome was different. All right. So, what do we conclude here? Well, my conclusion, that Jesus, I fully expect that uh, Jesus was clued in into this man's motivation. We may conclude that Jesus' prophetic gift and office clued him into the motivation of this man's question. It's my conclusion, and I'm going to show you the scriptures here to support that. I think had this man been truly genuine about wanting to be saved, about wanting to know about eternal life and so forth, Jesus would have responded evangelistically. No question in my mind. He did it on other occasions. Okay, Told uh, Nicodemus he had to be born again. So why, why was Jesus different with Nicodemus than this guy? Okay, I think it's because of the approach. We may conclude that Jesus' prophetic gift and office clued him into the motivation of this man's question. Jesus undoubtedly was obedient to his Father and obedient to the Scriptures. Jesus never delivered a message the Father didn't give him. And so this legalistic response was from the Father. Jesus was obedient to the Father in delivering this legalistic message rather than an evangelistic message. Let's look at it. Because I think this is critical. We don't have as much of an understanding of the prophets maybe as we need. Um, and all too often commentaries are, they pretty much assign omniscience to so much of what Jesus does in his ministry. And that breaks my heart. Jesus never once used omniscience. Not once in his earthly life. Not one time did he use omniscience in his earthly life. Because he was tested in all things even as we are. If he used omniscience even one time, then he's not our substitute. He didn't identify with us. He faced tests and with things that we can't. So understand that. He never used omnipotence, omniscience. and He, he laid aside his privileges, Philippians chapter 2. All right? And uh, all of his miracles were provided for by the power empowerment of the Holy Spirit as an Old Testament prophet. All of the things that were revealed to him was revealed by the Holy Spirit or by the Father as an Old Testament prophet. All right. And I think this was more normal than not. First Samuel nine. Join me there. First Samuel nine. We get a, I think a, a story here that uh, is more common than we recognize. Because there aren't an abundant number of illustrations, but if we view this as being typical of a prophet's daily life, then uh, I think uh, we have a better understanding. So in 1 Samuel chapter 9, 
Saul's out here, uh, who's soon to become King Saul. Saul, the son of Kish, he's a young man from the tribe of Benjamin. He's looking for his father's missing donkeys. And uh, notice what it says in 1 Samuel 9, 15. Now, a day, <coughs> well, what happens here in verses 11 through 14 is Saul is having no luck finding these donkeys. And then he finds out that there's a, there's a prophet in this town, a seer. And he says, well, let's go ask the prophet. Maybe he can tell us where these missing donkeys are. And so uh, they went up to the city and they came. Uh, behold, Samuel was coming out toward them. Uh, to go up to the high place. Well, what a coincidence. They reached the town and he just happened to be there. Okay, well, it wasn't a coincidence and here's why. A day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you will anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. And so when Samuel, so he gets heads up the day before. About this time tomorrow. And God makes very clear. He doesn't send this note. doesn't send this verbal message until that time of day, the day before. Okay. About this time tomorrow. <clears throat> so, and then when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you. So here's a follow-up. This is him. <laughs> I told you yesterday. I'm telling you now. No misunderstandings. No miscommunication. This is the guy. The man of whom I spoke to you, the one shall rule over my people. So Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, please tell me where the seer's house is. <laughs> and Samuel answered and Saul said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place. You shall eat with me today. And in the morning I will let you go and I will tell you all that's on your mind. And oh, by the way, as for the donkeys, which were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them. They've been found. <laughs> okay. I love this. This is, this is so wonderful. And this is... Um, I think a lot of times folks think of this as unusual, as a one-time miracle, the only time this ever happened. I think it's more normal than, than unusual, more usual than unusual, okay? As a uh, part of the ministry in, uh, on a daily basis for prophets. What did we see in the book of Amos uh, a couple months ago? Amos 3.7. And to me, this, this says that, again, it's more usual than unusual. All right, Amos. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Get to Obadiah, you've gone too far. Amos 3.7 Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret counsel to His servants, the prophets. So does the Lord God do nothing? He doesn't do nothing. He does a lot. <laughs> okay? He does a lot. And He does so on a daily basis. He's at work amongst His people. And if there is an anointed prophet in office in those days... And there wasn't always. There were periods of judgment when he removed prophets from office and gave them a spiritual drought. But if there was a prophet in office in those days, then it was normal. The Lord God does nothing unless he's revealing that through his servants, the prophets. And then bringing it forward to the life of Christ, Mark chapter 14. Again, this is why I think it's more normal and uh, probably pretty consistent in our Savior's ministry as well. Mark 14, verses 13 through 16. He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Well, how do they know that? How did Jesus know this? And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat? the Passover with my disciples, and he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, prepare for us there. And the disciples went out and came to the city and found it uh, just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. So, again, I think these daily updates, these little heads-up messages, these anticipations of what's going to happen here, what's going to happen there. Uh, another episode is in First uh, Kings where uh, King uh, Ahab is just pulling his hair out trying to catch Elijah. And he can't, because every time he lays a trap, Elijah's tipped off the day before and he's out of there, right? Plus, I think Elijah probably teleported more often than we understand. And, and every time a trap was laid, how do you trap a prophet? Uh, every time Saul kept trying to hunt down David, and David said, should I stay here tonight or are they going to give me over? Do I hide in this cave? And, and, and Saul was hunting David for years. How do you track down a prophet? See. So, I believe that this is part of the 
details behind why Jesus did not reply to this man evangelistically. He replied to him legalistically. And again, Jesus says, I can speak nothing on my own initiative, but as I hear, I speak. He was delivering the messages from the Father, and the Father gave him a legalistic response to this rich young ruler. And Jesus replied in obedience to the Father with a legalistic message to the rich young ruler. Jesus undoubtedly was obedient to his Father and obedient to the Scriptures. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Proverbs 26. I should have added an Ecclesiastes reference here as well, but let's just look at what's on the screen. Proverbs 26, verse 4 and verse 5. And you say, the Bible seems to contradict itself. <laughs> no, the Bible never con- contradicts itself. God is a God of truth. Everything God says is true. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So understand when you have contrary instructions that they're both applicable depending on the circumstances. Proverbs 26.4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. You know, when some moron approaches you and wants to know if God can make a rock so heavy he can't lift it. <laughs> All right. Anyone ever done that? Or uh, they want to discuss uh, Cain and Cain's wife. How uh, <laughs> Cain uh, fled to the land of Nod and, and the land of Nod in a, some kind of a linguistic connection with Akkadian whatever, uh, is, is a cognate term for an ape. And Cain got his wife from the land of apes. And, <laughs> okay, maybe I'm the only one that encountered I mean, does God send all the crazy people in Austin to me? Why is that? I don't know. No, you probably have your own share of crazy people you talk to. But All right, there will be occasions when... Foolish discussions will engage and you will just say, no, not me, not now, not today. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. You know, if I even engage in this conversation, I'm just going to be right there in the, in the foolishness. Okay. But then verse five, answer a fool as his folly deserves that he not be wise in his own eyes. There is a context, there is a setting, there is an appropriate place and time in which treating an idiot like an idiot actually edifies, if in fact um, it can be productive for some uh, humility enforcement, (laughs) shall we say. He not be wise in his own eyes. Okay? So, when do you apply verse 4? When do you apply verse 5? Well, I think if you are humble under the, in, the leading of the Holy Spirit, if you have your eyes open to the leading of Jesus Christ, are you walking with Christ? Are you walking with Christ? Then uh, which, uh, which path is he going down? Is he going down the do not answer path or is he going down the answer path? Make sure you're walking with him and walk down the right path. All right. And and leave yourself in a um, in an openness and a willingness to be obedient. Say, Father, if, if you want me to speak, then impel me to do so. OK, but if you want me to stay silent, then just shut my lips. And when you surrender that to Him, if daily you are prayerfully just yielding that to Him, before every day starts, before every encounter or whatever, then uh, you know if you, if you know the encounter is coming up, you know if you know, for example, you've got a thing scheduled for tomorrow morning at ten o'clock or what have you, then then uh, you know pray for it ahead of time. Say, Father, open my mouth or close my mouth. Impel me to say what you want me to say, or keep me from saying what I shouldn't say. And and Father, just if you do that. You can have the most relaxed mental attitude afterwards. You can sleep well at night. You can walk away and and not be filled with guilt and wonder, oh, should I have said this or I could have said that or, oh, you know, 
hey, relax. Absolutely relax. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I've driven home after church services cringing, thinking, oh, I can't believe I said that. You know? Well, and then I just give it to the Father in faith and rest. I say, Father, I, I was in fellowship and I was teaching, and it was, if you didn't want it to go out there, you should have stopped me. <laughs> Father's your fault, right? And then I just relax and say, Lord, you know, get a better pastor or do something, but it's it's all grace, it's all faith, it's all whatever you wanted, you know. You wanted it said, it got said. You didn't want it said, then stop it. So it's a wonderful opportunity. And you can apply verse 4, you can apply verse 5. Remember, it's the faith that you have, have as your own conviction, happy is he that does not condemn himself in that which he approves. And there will be times, and you'll, be, you'll surprise yourself sometimes. It'll happen. And you'll just... You have no clue. Well, where did that come from? You know, and all of a sudden you just engage in a conversation. You told somebody something and a verse came to your mind and you hadn't thought about that verse in 20 years. But here it is. Okay. And, you know, when you walk away from a conversation like that, just fall on your knees and worship and pray and say, man, that was all the Holy Spirit just coming out. And it's a, it's a, it's a blessing. It's a real blessing. You, you don't want to get all Pentecostal or whatever, but, you know, the Holy Spirit just used you in a powerful way. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a neat, neat blessing when you understand how that's happening. All right. Uh, and then there's some New Testament passages, too. Uh, of course, if you want to add, you can always throw in Ecclesiastes 3, right? For uh, There's a time for everything under the sun. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, so let me just grab that real quick. Song of Solomon, before Song of Solomon. There we go. Ecclesiastes 3. There's an appointed time for everything. And so, um, you know, weep and laugh, mourn and dance, throw stones, gather stones, give birth. Anyway, um, there it is. Verse 7. A time to be silent and a time to speak. That's 3-7-B. A time to be silent and a time to speak. So which is which? Well, wisdom will tell you. All right. Matthew 7, 6. Oh, this is wonderful. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6. I think some people are convinced that this verse is not in their Bibles. And I like to highlight that uh, you're conducting your walk in such a way that you're acting as if this verse isn't there. Um, acknowledge the verse is there and then consider what you're going to do about it. Consider what the Father would have for you. Okay? And the reason being, I think, and the reason why is because of that First Peter passage. Okay? Maybe I should take that out of order. First Peter 3.15. Well, we'll, we won't, we'll keep it in the, in the order. But that's the gospel. Everyone jumps on. That's the passage that says, always be ready to give an account. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you, for any who might ask. Okay? But with that, I think we need to Connect Matthew 7, 6 and understand that not everyone that asks is legitimately asking, is fairly asking, is humbly asking, is truly desirous of the information for eternal life. Quite a few times, folks are asking in wickedness. They're asking to try to snare you. They're asking for wrong motivations. And we've got to understand that. I am not obligated to give the gospel to every human being on the planet. If they're asking, I have to have my feet shod and prepared and I have to give an answer. If they're legitimately asking. And I think there's another phrase in 1 Peter that addresses that. But let's go back to Matthew 7 now and let's look at this because there are folks I am commanded not to give truth. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. There is an inappropriate audience for the gospel message. There is an inappropriate audience for biblical truth. Or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. You've got to understand what that verse is dealing with. And if, uh, if, you're, if you are dealing with dogs and swine... 
know that for what it is. Understand the unclean animals, both dogs and swine, were both unclean animals. All right? And um, you could think of them as Jewish and Gentile if you want. Dogs were often the Gentile concept and swine the Jewish concept. But they were both unclean animals in whatever respect. And um, whether it's what is holy or pearls, the idea is, is it's not going to be appreciated. It's not going to be received. It's not going to be edifying. It's not going to be for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's going to be for your detriment. For your detriment. All right. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if, uh, for example, you got, you got co-workers and they're unbelievers and they're shacking up outside of marriage and whatever, are you going to grab a Bible and start thumping it and tell them that they're uh, a couple of fornicators and they need to repent and they need to, you know, what do you expect? They're unbelievers. That's what unbelievers do. That's what, you know, dogs bark, cats meow. It's what they do. What do you expect? I mean, you might as well expect, uh, you know, dogs to quit being dogs or something. Or unbelievers to quit being unbelievers. When's that going to happen? It's going to happen when they're transformed. It's going to happen when they're saved. It's going to happen when a new nature is provided for them and their minds are renewed by the Word of God. All right? <laughs> Your son tells that story. Pastor Stan Newton tells that story. His, the first church he ever took out of, out of seminary was out on the West Coast. West Coast is a little bit different than, uh, you know, the Bible Belt and the more genteel Christian territory down here. You know, he takes a church. I don't know what the membership was or the size of the flock, but, uh, you know, about 60% of the church wasn't married. How do you take a church like that? <laughs> what do you start doing there? Okay. Well, it takes gentleness. It takes grace. It takes patience it takes teaching it takes um yeah it takes a guy like stan you know god crafted him and placed him puts people where they need to be for powerful ministry effects all right do not give what is holy to dogs do not throw your pearls before swine this rich young ruler he didn't need a gospel message he wasn't ready for that yet See, you got to understand what is the point of god consciousness what is the point of gospel hearing what is the point where is the Volition. Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it ready? Is he under conviction? Is he being drawn? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Maybe he's not being drawn yet. Maybe he's still being lost. Okay? Colossians 4 6. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. There is no need for that verse to be in the Bible if your response is the same way to every person you meet. If you have the same response every time to everybody, everywhere, then you don't need to know how to respond. But if responses are different to certain people, certain times, certain circumstances, certain conditions. See, I had an opportunity to give the gospel to a man that um, was homosexual. And uh, for five, six years, I knew him and never once condemned his homosexuality. And then when he was on the verge of, he died of AIDS, and when he was on the verge of physical death and wanted to know, if he lost his salvation, see, I didn't lead him to Christ. He actually got saved as a kid. He got saved in, in a Lutheran church growing up. I was convinced that he was saved in his youth. Um, so I wasn't, I was giving him good news, but just enforcing that he hadn't lost with eternal security and assurance and so forth. But the reason why I had an open door to speak to him was that because for six years I never condemned him. I never threw pearls before a swine. I never um, wasn't my place. He's doing what he's doing. And uh, I just want to set my example and stay faithful to the truth. And as far as my life and testimony is concerned, and, and if, uh, if a door opens up, and there it did. There it did. And I was thankful for that. So uh, let your speech always be seasoned with, with grace as though seasoned with salt. You never lose with grace. 
You never lose with grace. And um, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Then now, First Peter 3.15. And does this say what we think it says? Or is there a grace component here also that we can connect to the grace we just saw in Colossians 4.6? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. You know, I think that gets ignored a lot and just write that off. That doesn't apply. Well, yes, it does apply. It means before you give the answer, you are already intimate with Jesus Christ. You are already following his path. You're already walking with him. You're in fellowship with him. Always being ready to make a defense to any, everyone who asks you. But what are they asking? To give an account for the hope that is in you. So if they are positive and asking about the legitimate aspects of salvation and eternal life and hope, and yet notice, yet with gentleness and reverence. Why does that have to be in there? Yet with gentleness and reverence. I think this too applies to the discernment that we're supposed to have. Reverence before the Lord, the fear of the Lord say, well, why do I have to be reverent if somebody is asking me something? Because it may, you may not be replying evangelistically. You may be replying legalistically. You may be replying as our Savior did. You may decide, you know what, this is pearls before swine. And you may have with gentleness and reverence, you may have to say, you know, this, uh, uh, you're not ready for what you're asking. Okay. You don't really want the answers I'm going to give you. With gentleness and with reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered. Ah. <laughs> so you've replied with gentleness and reverence and now you understand they are the, the, the dogs and the, they're turning to trample you. Or to bite you. The, the swine is turning to trample you. Um, all right. Keep a good conscience in the thing in which you are slandered. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So uh, this may not be a legitimate gospel opportunity. This could be just an angelic conflict encounter. That's why you need the gentleness and the reverence. And you are not obligated to answer everybody that asks you a Bible question. If it's hostile, if there's a snare, if it's just wickedness at work, do you have to give them an answer? I'm trying to provide a relaxation factor here because I think uh, I've, I've known folks that have been kind of enslaved by verse 15. Like they have to give an answer. No, there is a time to be silent. There's a time to speak. And we need to be sensitive. I think this episode here is wonderful. As I said uh, in the main point, this uh, Jesus ministry in this episode is extraordinary for its non-evangelistic communication. Point six in our outline. Telling this man to keep the law is like telling the unrighteous to keep on doing unrighteousness. Revelation 22.11 Telling this man to keep the law is like telling the unrighteous to keep on doing unrighteousness. Revelation 22.11 As the fruit of their own way is fully eaten and those who refuse to hear are permitted their rebellion. Those who refuse to hear are permitted their rebellion. Revelation 22, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. You know, it's, a, it's an amazing imperative. It's like, he that has an ear, let him hear. How about, he that is wicked, let him be wicked. That's what this is saying. And so telling this man to keep the law is very similar in that vein. As the fruit of their own way is fully eaten. What's the same Proverbs 1? There is a way that seems right unto a man. Proverbs 1, verses 24 through 33. It's a long stretch here, but... I called, and you refused. I stretched out my hand, and no one paid attention. This is wisdom speaking. You neglected all my counsel. 
and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. See, he who sits in the heavens laughs. And sometimes we laugh too because what else is there to do except cry? And sometimes we do both. We see believers who should know better and they're not living according to Scripture. And you just weep because their heart's broken over it. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. At what point are you given over where even in the, the given over of God's wrath, he chooses to not respond to prayer? And is it prayer that's based on a, a conviction and repentance? Or is it a prayer that's simply motivated by a desperation and a, and a need? They hated knowledge. They did not choose the fear of the Lord. So why were they calling on him? Why were they diligently seeking him? Not because they feared him. Not because of doctrine. But just because they didn't like their discipline. Well, not supposed to like it. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. He gives them over. The waywardness of the naive will kill them. The complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. You know, as we evaluate repentance on the part of brothers and sisters that are departing and, and whatnot, we need to consider, you know, are we simply, is this an Esau situation where he's afterwards he regretted the loss of the blessing and he sought for it with tears? yet he found no room for repentance in his heart? Is it, a, is it a genuine repentance that is responding in the fear of the Lord to the reproof of doctrine? Or is it simply a regret based upon a human uh, you know, agony at the discipline we're under? No surprising that you're miserable. Got that. You're supposed to be miserable. But are you humbled under the authority of the Word of God? That's repentance. The fruit of their own way is fully eaten, and those who refuse to hear are permitted their rebellion. Ezekiel 3.27 Ezekiel 3.27 Principle here. I want to speak to you. Let's see, this is a... You know, he'd been tied down and laid on one side and laid on another side. He, he acted out so many of these uh, messages. And then um, the hand of the Lord was on me. He said, go up, go out to the plain. I will speak to you there. And the Spirit entered me and made me stand on my feet. He spoke with me and said to me, go shut yourself up in your house. As for you, son of man, they will put ropes on you and bind you with them so that you cannot move or go out among them. Moreover, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth. <laughs> so that you will be mute and cannot uh, be a man who rebukes them, for they are a rebellious house. He actually stops Ezekiel's tongue. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you will say to them, Thus says the Lord God. So it's, it's a fascinating testimony in, in this stage of Ezekiel's ministry. He was mute unless he was rebuking Israel under prophetic inspiration. So, you know, it just... Any other time of day, walking on the street or, you know, or wasn't walking on the street, he was tied up. But, uh, you know, you couldn't ask him, hey, what do you think about the Lakers game last night? He couldn't talk about the weather, couldn't talk about news. But when the Lord could open his mouth and loose his tongue for thus saith the Lord, uh, you guys are in trouble. <laughs> when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you will say to them, thus says the Lord God, he who hears, let him hear. And he who refuses, let him refuse. For they are a rebellious house. They are a rebellious house. All right. Now the last thing, we only got five minutes left, but let's understand the specifics of this episode should be viewed as illustrative. Illustrative? Illustrative? Rather than exhaustive. Okay? This is a for instance. 
But don't take it as being the only issue. In other words, maybe you have no problem giving away everything and saying, okay, God, I earned heaven. Maybe wealth isn't your hang-up. But you got something else. I got something else. We all have carnality issues. The rich young ruler serves as a type of every human being making human effort attempts to earn glory. So understand here, he's gonna he's gonna end with a parable. He's gonna re- in fact, there's a it's a fairly standard Jewish parable. Sometimes it's a camel in a Babylonian setting. It's an elephant. Uh, either play either way though, it's an eye of a needle, and it's a, it's a proverb, a maxim that was known to the Jews in the ancient world. But you can say, you know, it, you don't have to limit it to a rich man. It's not just a rich man that has a hard time getting saved. What's your hang-up? What's your sin barrier? Whatever it is, human effort is not going to get you there. So the rich young ruler serves as a type of every human being making human effort attempts to earn glory. This particular example had a particular weakness. That was wealth. That was particularly highlighted in this story. But can we expand it? And if we expand it, of course, do we identify that the principle remains a valid principle of Scripture by expanding it? And I believe we do. Various other such human effort approaches have various other weaknesses. Maybe your weakness is alcohol. Maybe your weakness is women. Maybe your weakness is pride. Maybe your weakness is uh, is what have you. And uh, Jesus could say... Um, if, if your weakness is, is women, then he could say, well, give up all sexual activity for the rest of your life. And you'll enter into glory. And there would be folks that would say, <laughs> they would rep- reply like the rich man to this. They would go away grieved, not because they had much wealth, but because they, you know, that's their issue. That's their, uh, that's their thing. And they're not going to. Or whatever other illustration that it might be. Say, point being, I've got to endure 40 years of hell just so I can go to heaven. What's that? Various other other such human effort approaches have various other weaknesses. Jesus indicates the broadened scope. Are you still in Mark? Probably not. Mark 10. Jesus indicates the broadened scope when he expands from the wealthy to everyone. Mark chapter 10, verse 23, and then he expands it in verse 24. Notice, Jesus looking around said to his disciples how hard it would be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is. Notice now, for anybody, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's not just wealth. It's not just, it could be anything. How hard it is. How hard is it? If you're attempting to earn it through human effort, through what you've earned or deserved, through your own merit, how hard is it? Well, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so they're even more astonished. said to him, then who can be saved? This is the point. In human effort, nobody can be saved. The camel and needle illustration applies to every human effort approach to righteousness. It's included in Mark 19, or Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 18. The camel and needle illustration applies to every human effort approach to righteousness. And the last point, I'm rushing through these last points, but point eight, salvation is impossible for human beings, but God is not restrained by human impossibilities. God is not restrained by human impossibilities. With people it is impossible, but with, not with God, for all things are possible with God. All the human impossibilities are possible with God. All right. We will... Uh, I wanted to get through that. We are at 11 o'clock. If the first... 
If that was a little bit rushed, we'll uh, we'll follow up some next week if you have questions or what have you. Uh, by the way, if you uh, encounter a commentary or a sermon or whatever, if you hear uh, something about a, uh, a gate in Jerusalem where camel caravans were trying to be brought in and whatever, that's a myth, all right? And it's in a lot of commentaries, and it's uh, it's been preached by different pastors and whatever that there was a gate at Jerusalem called the Needle's Eye Gate and blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's no truth to any of that. It was first... Uh, invented in about the ninth century and then it was kind of magnified in the 15th century and and there's no historical archaeological biblical um logical <laughs> basis for uh, for that story in fact that story violates scripture so um anyway if you encounter that in a commentary um don't think that uh, that i overlooked it or neglected it or i uh, didn't know about it or failed to teach it uh, I failed to teach it because it's a bad thing to teach. Okay, And maybe you've never heard the story. Don't worry about it. But if you encounter it, someone tries to tell you about this gate um, or a, a, a people gate inside of a larger gate, it's not biblical, it's not right, and does not belong in this text. Thank you, Father, for your truth, for your faithfulness, for your grace. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.